0: Hi, I'm Sinari Glenton. Let me paint a mental picture for you. The year is 1984. We're in a mall. A man dangles a child over the second story railing of a busy food court. And just as he's about to drop her, there is a crash. A dark-haired woman smashes through the glass skylight, swings from a golden lasso, and carries the child to safety. Remember what shopping was like, y'all? I am talking about Wonder Woman 1984, the movie. Now they filmed it three years ago at a dead mall in Alexandria, Virginia, the Landmark Mall. And while the film crew was shooting that scene in the food court, nearby in the old Macy's department store, a very different kind of rescue mission was unfolding.
1: We have veterans. We have domestic violence survivors or people currently going through it. We have people who this is their first time being homeless because they had some sort of tragedy or illness that just took all of their savings.
0: For two and a half years, all those people lived in the mall in a temporary shelter set in an old department store. Now, this shelter and Wonder Woman gave a dead mall a completely new purpose, a chance at renewal. But what about the rest of the malls? Well, even before the pandemic, malls across America were dead or dying. And experts predicted one out of every four malls will close as more shopping moves online. Now, months of lockdowns haven't helped. On this episode of Now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley, we're asking... How are shopping malls adapting? And how is the pandemic forcing that change?
2: This is a shopping mall that is probably light years ahead of 99% of the other malls in this world.
3: Me personally, I hate shopping malls. I never go to them. It was really about building a building for people who might not actually like shopping malls as well.
1: I think it's great to have that space used again because it's right in the middle of the community.
0: Malls are dead. Long live the mall. Now, let's go shopping. I definitely had a good 30 minutes this morning getting dressed because I was like, I'm going to meet Ilsa Mechik. I can't like come looking like a, did I do okay?
4: Good. (laughs) I don't mind that at all. (laughs) You're right.
0: Note that she said she didn't mind my outfit. Ilse Metric, mind you, is a legend in the fashion industry. For over 17 years, she worked her way up from being an assistant to becoming a designer. She ended up owning her own clothing manufacturing company, which she eventually sold and then became the head of the California Fashion Association.
4: We've been around for 25 years. I've been around for twice that. I've been a designer. I've been a manufacturer. I've managed 250,000 square feet of the California Mart. And one of my functions is to know what's going on.
0: Now to do that, Ilse Mechik goes to a different mall every single week. And I wanted to get her take on a newer shopping experience, so we went to Platform in Culver City, just outside of Los Angeles.
4: When you think of a mall nationwide in the United States, this is not what you think of. This is a structure that was really primarily for one kind of consumer a contemporary shopper, contemporary clothing, contemporary apparel. It's not a general mall.
0: No, it isn't. It's got a lot of pop-up stores, open air walkways, cool seating areas and a courtyard. Very urban, very Instagram friendly. But for Ilsa, now more than ever, malls need that extra special something to draw folks in.
4: I went to a mall last weekend, 50 miles out of Los Angeles. The stores looked so dated. They still had a T-shirt with a pair of jeans in the window. There was nothing compelling about bringing all of these eyeballs into the store. The people will be back in the malls. Now it's up to the retailer.
0: And they're just beginning to come to grips with this problem.
4: Before the pandemic, as a country, we were over-retailed, too many stores.
0: Too many stores, too many malls. And brands that used to be popular in malls have been closing or failing. Right now, we're talking about 2 million lost jobs. You don't have to be a legendary fashion designer to know that all malls are not the same. They fall essentially into categories. A malls, well, they make the most money. Think high-end restaurants and Apple stores. B malls, those are the mid-range
4: malls. C's are pretty much over. Those are the ones that are blank spots now because they had JCPenney, Sears, May Company, or a Macy's. And in the middle, they had all the same brands that you can find anywhere else. And anything that you can buy in a C mall, you could buy online.
0: With the pandemic's boom in online shopping, you would think that malls are in more danger than ever, but
4: 50% of what is bought online goes back. Is returned. The bloom is off that pumpkin. You'll buy online what you know will stick with you, what fits, what you know. But for new stuff, to be excited, to be engaged in what's happening, you have to get out. You're not going out to the mall with your wallet in your hand and seeing what you can buy. I think that's not what a mall is for anymore. A mall is a social experience now.
0: For many of us, especially anyone born in the suburbs after the 70s, the mall has always been social and it's likely where you got your first taste of
2: freedom. Yeah, I think from my junior high years through high school, I'd ask my parents to drop me off there and then spend the day watching a movie and then waiting for other friends to show up and then just walking around the mall. It's not really even necessarily shopping. And back then, it was very, very exciting. Just lots of people buzzing around.
0: That's Howard Lowe. He grew up in the suburbs of Orlando, Florida. But the mall he's describing is actually every mall USA.
2: And I remember it was a cross shape. So all four ends of it was anchored by one of the major department stores. There was a Sears, actually. Yes, I remember going to Sears a lot over there when I was growing up.
0: Now, these days, Howard Lowe spends a lot of time in a very different mall on the other side of the world.
2: Okay, so I can give you the exact sensation of what it feels like when you walk into Jewel. If you ever watch the opening scene of Jurassic Park, and, you know, it's kind of flying through the clouds, you're coming to the island, and then you see the first dinosaur, and you've got this, like, music swelling in the background...
0: Howard Lowe is describing The Jewel, an opulent mall attached to Singapore's Changi Airport. Now, I'm not talking a regular airport, you know. I may have left my heart in San Francisco, but Atlanta's airport stole my soul. Changi is heaven in comparison. It's been rated the best airport in the world. Howard moved to Singapore in 2003, and while working full-time at Microsoft, he opened a Japanese-style sushi bar where he met his wife and future business partner. They took that sushi bar and grew it into a group of restaurants and bars called Empire Eat. They chose to put two of their places in the jewel because, well, they knew it was gonna be a hit.
2: When you come in from the main entrance, As soon as you walk in, it's grand. Like, there's just so much space, as the hallways are so wide. But straight in front of you is the amazing rain vortex.
0: That is the world's largest indoor waterfall, dropping down from the glass ceiling. And it's surrounded by a forest that stretches over five stories. There are also garden mazes, climbing nets, a museum, movies, lots of places to eat, bars, and oh yeah... Shopping. It's an all-day experience, and you don't have to be inside the travel part of the airport to go to Jewel. It is open to everyone.
2: Even before Jewel, the locals have always gone to just hang out at the airport. But you go there at any time and you'll see students using the restaurants to hang out and study at. You'll see families coming in with their kids since there's all kinds of rotating exhibits and road shows that are going on at the airport. Now,
0: during the pandemic, with most travel suspended, Changi Airport has taken a huge hit. Passenger traffic dropped nearly 83%, but Howard's noticed the locals have embraced Juul even more.
2: I think it offers a little psychological escape. The fact that you do go to the airport to go to this mall helps trigger those associations in one's mind that they're getting away. Then once they're in the mall, because it is so different from the other shopping malls out here, it feels like a comfortable mini vacation.
0: And while Howard says Jewel is light years ahead of balls around the world, there are signs it's changing stateside as well. Probably the best example is the Grove in Los Angeles, which is sort of like a theme park with restaurants, shops, live events. They tape TV shows and specials there. They have valet and concierge services. There are fountains and lawns, even a trolley that goes. Developers have been forced to experiment. Heck, they should have been experimenting all along, especially with traditional mall tenants looking to leave. Now, last fall, the Gap, which owns Old Navy and Banana Republic, said it essentially is moving out of the traditional mall. It's moving 80% of its stores out of indoor shopping centers over the next two years. Now, this part is huge. At the most successful malls to keep the existing tenants and attract new ones, malls are offering smaller spaces and shorter leases. They're replacing the old school department stores and food courts with bars, gyms, art installations, and most importantly, pop-up stores and restaurants. They're fighting to stay alive and they could take a cue from Singapore where extremely competitive real estate means developers have to make it work right quick and in a hurry.
2: There have been a few examples where, of all, that was maybe only three or four years old, parts of it didn't seem to be as popular as maybe the developer wanted it. And they would just totally gut the inside and redo it within a couple of years. And that'll work. And I think in Singapore, the malls seem to have that pressure where they need to do that. They don't just let it kind of fizzle out.
0: Fizzle out. That's exactly what happened to the exciting mall from Howard's teenage years in Florida.
2: It was very sad to see that this place that was so iconic in my youth is now this almost empty shell of a large building. It makes me feel a little bit sad every time I go because, you know, malls have a very romantic place, I think, in especially American history and the development of American towns, American city life.
0: Let's take a moment. I'm going to try to put this in a bit of context. While Howard may be nostalgic about the good old days of the American shopping mall, shopping malls actually are kind of new. The designer of the first fully enclosed indoor shopping mall was Victor Gruen. He was an Austrian-Jewish architect who fled the Nazis during World War II. Eventually, he settled in Los Angeles. Gruen's malls are a post-World War II invention, and like a lot of mid-century designers, Gruen was looking to solve social problems with good design. In his own words, Shopping centers can fill an existing void. They can provide the needed place and opportunity for participation in modern community life that the ancient Greek agora, the medieval marketplace, and our own town squares provided in the past. Oh, architects, always dreaming. But you can see Gruen's influence in almost every corner of the U.S., and some of his malls still break records for foot traffic and sales. That's something Gruen came to regret toward the end of his life when he said, I would like to take this opportunity to disclaim paternity once and for all. I refuse to pay alimony to those bastard developments. They destroyed our cities. The irony, or maybe the tragedy, is that during his lifetime, malls veered far away from his core ideas. They became car first, retail first, huge rigid structures that didn't always meet the needs of pedestrians, the community, or the environment. Now let's head to a mall where those are the priorities. So why don't you give me a little bit of a tour? Absolutely.
3: Uh, One thing worth, whilst we're standing here, I'm not sure if you can hear it, but there's a soundscape of native birds, indigenous to this area. Every entrance of the building that you walk in, you have this sense. You walk in, there's a soundscape. There's also a smellscape. So in this particular entrance, there's a subtle smell of burning eucalyptus trees.
0: That's architect Stephen Choi. He's giving me a tour of the Burrwood Brickworks, a shopping mall he designed in a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. Like Victor Gruen and so many other designers and architects, Stephen Choi is a dreamer.
3: If I'm honest with you, when we first took on the idea of building a shopping mall that you know could generate its own energy, recycle its own water, be full of food, no toxic materials, and then many, many other things, I actually thought it was impossible. I, I really didn't think it'd be possible.
0: But here we are, just inside the entrance, looking up at a ridge ceiling covered in black and white waves, arrows, and other shapes designed by a local Aboriginal artist.
3: So the ceiling's actually about telling us where we are in the world. This mall built 10 years ago would have been more like a casino. You can't find your way in, you can't find your way out. You don't know what time of day it is, you don't even know if it's raining outside. In here, we tried to flip that on its head.
0: The Burwood Brickworks upends a lot of things we assume about how malls operate. For example, the kind of stores that go in. So there's a pharmacy just in front of us. Just
3: above that black sign you see there is a medical center. There's
0: a large supermarket or grocery store. There are no fast fashion or luxury shops here, mostly just services and food. There's a butcher
3: shop. And then just above and behind that butcher shop where you see the timber in the far end, that's a child care center.
0: And the prime real estate, the north-facing wall with the afternoon sunshine pouring in, features a giant staircase. So that when you come here, you're encouraged to take the stairs
3: rather than take the lift. So save a bit of energy, but it's really about people's health and well-being. So we're going to walk up those stairs and then we're going to go up to the first floor. Now, why was
0: that important as you're walking
3: up? When we think about you know, sustainability, we're only, often we're just talking about you know, energy, water, materials, waste. But actually the most important thing is that we're healthy as people. And so emotional health is important. The stairs relate to physical health. The ceiling relates to spiritual health. And often we don't think about health when we're talking about buildings, but that's really important. Here's something important to know
0: about Stephen Choi.
3: Me personally, I hate shopping malls. I never go to them.
0: How does a guy who who believes in sustainability and doesn't particularly like uh, shopping malls get into the making the shopping mall business? It's a
3: great question because I'm an architect and I realized that, you know, everything that I was doing was actually not helping the world, it was actually just making it worse. And so I embarked on this adventure to try and change it.
0: Now, when Stephen says making it worse, he's referring to a whole slew of environmental problems we're facing. Water pollution, habitat destruction, air quality, global warming, and of course, climate change. Now, remember Ilsa Mechik, our mall expert from the beginning? She might object to a mall without, I don't know, fashion, but she and Stephen share a common vision of how a mall needs to be forward-looking.
4: People build malls based on what's coming. They don't build a mall based on what is.
0: Global warming and climate change are here, not just coming. So every time you build a
3: building, it makes a lot of those environment problems I mentioned much worse. So we wanted to build a building that wouldn't do that, and also a building that was completely accessible to everyone in society.
0: That's a key for Stephen Choi, building a green building for everyone. Now, usually ultra green buildings are private homes or corporate spaces.
3: But generally for the everyday person, they never get to interact with a building that doesn't just do less damage to the environment that it's in, but could actually regenerate it.
0: The architect and dreamer Stephen Choi wants this building and the lessons that went into making it to be easily replicated and improved on. So he's sharing the plans and the data with other architects. That used to be unheard of. We end our tour at Stephen's favorite spot in the mall.
3: We're standing on the roof of the shopping center. It's an urban farm up here. So there's thousands and thousands of square feet of food that's grown. And also there's chickens, quails, bees, butterflies, and many other insects that we don't control.
0: Many other insects you can't control. Let me just take this opportunity to remind you that we are on the roof of a shopping mall. And there's kids playing
3: and people eating food that was grown right next to them. And then those people, when they go home, and I hear about this every day, you know, they start planting the same crops or they come to the farmer and they start talking about what they should do about their chickens or whatever that they own. And I think that's happened at the
0: community level and it's happened at the industry level. And it seems like your work has been focused on a couple of these ideas. One, the environment, and two, bringing the ideas sort of off the mountain. Is that an oversimplification? (laughs) That's a really lovely analogy.
3: I never thought of it that way. If you think about the things that are here, medical center, childcare, yoga, cinema, grocery store, cafes and so on, they're not really part of that same consumerist culture that you normally get in the retail environment. They're really about how and where people connect to each other. And that for me is just at the heart of all the work that I've wanted to do.
0: From the lush green gardens of Melbourne, Australia, to the cobblestone streets of Alexandria, Virginia, and that temporary shelter in the Landmark Mall.
1: Since the mall was shuttered and had been for a while, we had to actually go in and retrofit the building for the shelter. I mean, like, our offices were in ladies' activewear section, and where the administrative offices were, You could go through a door, which would take you into the mall. It was really, really kind of interesting, dark, scary. When we first got there, I would be like, oh, we would go out, and I would look and see if I could find a diamond or something.
0: Monice Quidley was looking around for signs of life. She's the director of development for Carpenter Shelter and was one of the people in charge of finding a temporary space for the shelter while its new permanent home was being built. When she found out they were moving into the Landmark Mall.
1: I was like, what? We're moving where?
0: Monice knew Landmark in its better days. It was her first shopping experience after she moved to the area in the 90s.
1: It was booming. It's where all the high school students and people hung out, movie theaters. So it was busy. It was a hub bringing all kinds of people together because it was central in the community.
0: Until it wasn't. Demographics shifted in the neighborhood and shoppers shifted to the newer upscale malls. Redevelopment plans for the Landmark fizzled in 2008 when the financial collapse bankrupted the owners. Retailers started closing one shop after another until all that was left was the Sears and long corridors of, well, nothing. In 2017, the Landmark Mall went dark. As the owners finalized new development plans and renegotiated with the community, they agreed to let the Carpenter Shelter have the old Macy space rent-free.
1: It was interesting to hear some of the residents' stories and the fact that many of them had shopped at the mall when it was a mall. Some of them have even worked in the mall when it was a mall. I think that bears repeating. Some of them have even worked in the mall when it was a mall.
0: So how did living in it as a homeless shelter go over?
1: Well, I think they were a little happy in one aspect because since everything was brand new, they were getting brand new rooms and brand new beds and mattresses. But it was also, for some, reminding them of where they had been previously.
0: Is there a more tangible reminder of your town's better days than an abandoned mall? But there were bright spots.
1: At one point, we had a carnival that lasted about a month, which was right outside. Because think about it, there's lots of parking.
0: The children were all excited, but the shelter didn't have the funds to cover the tickets. And then a donor came through and paid for everyone to go.
1: It was really nice that people who were experiencing a crisis were able to just let their children be children for, you know, two hours and not have to worry about how the ice cream would be paid for or what rides they could get on.
0: The carnival left, as they always do, and a Christmas tree vendor showed up in the lot. Monique says there was always something
1: going on was kind of like we came and then life came back to the mall because at that point it was kind of like nothing really much going on but it was like we brought the community back to it so that was good
0: we brought the community back to it can you hear that victor gruen one of the things we often forget about malls is that they weren't built with flexibility in mind
4: If the people move away or the people change, then the mall can't move. It's there. The mall can't move. People can move.
0: But malls can reinvent themselves to meet the changing needs of people. Carpenter Shelter moved out of the Landmark and into their forever home last November. And early this year, Landmark developers announced the plan to turn the mall into a hospital campus with mixed-use housing, retail, and green space.
1: Designs and things of that nature might have to be tweaked, but I think it's great to have that space used again because it's right in the middle of the community.
0: And that makes it very valuable, valuable real estate. Some of these dark malls have already become offices, colleges, recreation facilities, senior housing complexes, even churches. Some have become Amazon fulfillment centers. I think that's called irony. Here is a huge opportunity here. And developers are always trying to find the most financially rewarding solution. They need to make money. Best case scenario...
4: They're going to be the social framework of a community. Everything will be repurposed, but they will be the centers of a community.
0: I was thinking about my conversation with Ilsa Mechik. You know, the only thing that I bought in a mall the whole year of the pandemic is a refurbished army jacket that has a giant image of Muhammad Ali on the back. I bought it from a local artist in a pop-up shop that definitely wouldn't have existed at a mall a few years ago. Now, To be honest, I might go back and see what shows up there next. As Ilsa Metzik would say, fashion and malls are about being relevant. And what's more relevant at this moment than community? The mall is dead, I guess. (laughs) Long live the mall. On our next episode, we study up on how the pandemic has created opportunities to rethink college. I'm Sonarion Glinton, and this has been Now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley. Thanks for listening.